Excuse me. Open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 29. We're going to read that one verse and study the topic this morning, where there is no vision. Let's read together. Where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Proverbs is a very interesting book in that it's almost at times like talking to somebody that has ADHD. (laughs) Some of the books of the Bible have a very specific contextual flow. What do I mean by that is when you look at the book of Romans, you can kind of see where Paul's going. When he starts out by talking about the just shall live by faith and how the wrath of God is equally revealed from heaven, then he goes to talk about how it's revealed against all ungodliness, and all are condemned, but there is justification found in Christ. You can see his transitionary periods and how his thought process is going. Well, sometimes in the book of Proverbs, you don't see that, and there may be a point of wisdom here, a point of wisdom there. I do believe there is context in the way that it's written, but sometimes we miss it. So we're going to just grab a hold of this verse this morning and kind of dissect it in understanding what the vision is specific in context. How is it that people perish? And what it means that we are happy when we are keeping the law of God. All right, where there is no vision, what is it here that is spoken of as being a vision in context of Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 18? There are a few different ways that people interpret this, and most of them don't really fit the understanding or context of what the writer here means. Sometimes people will look and say, God has given me a vision. He's given me this intuition to where I'm trying to present it to you. I'm trying to tell you what God has revealed to me. Now, I will tell you this, that we need to be very careful in the way that we word things. Now, I don't disagree that God sometimes burdens a person's heart. God burdens us. God directs us. We have a holy unction from God in the way that he points us in this life. You know, we've saved preacher, pray about it, right? When a man's called to a church, well, pray about it. Well, we believe God is directing, right? I mean, I don't think there's a single person in here who does not believe that God is actively directing us in our path. And I do believe that God directs us, but there's a difference between God burdening us and giving us a vision or revelation. Because God's revelation, in the sense of his inspired word, ended when the last word of revelation... (laughs) was penned, right? When God specifically inspired the Word of God and put that last period on the last sentence of the last book of the last chapter of the Bible, revelation stopped. Right then. There was no more open revelation. You may say, well, I think God sometimes still reveals it to us today. Well, if He is revealing more revelation today, then you need to have empty pages on the back of your Bible in which you are writing down this because it is equally authoritative as the Word of God. But we know that not to be true. And if he does give us open vision and it agrees with the word of God, well, then it's pointless to have the open vision. If the open vision does not agree with the word of God, we should discard it. You see my point. When we think of an open vision and God is burdening us to tell somebody something or he's giving us an open prophecy, well, it's going to not mesh very well with God's word because he has given us the final authority, the final word, the final vision, the final revelation in his inspired and preserved word. 
So when we say it's, well, he's given me this vision, he's telling me to do something, that's dangerous. One reason it's dangerous because Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9 tells us that the heart is deceitful, it's wicked. Who can know it? When we read that and we see that the human heart can very often deceive us, we have to say, well, not everything that I feel burdened to do or a vision that I have may not be true. You know, sometimes I feel real burdened to have a taco, right? <laughs> you know, I've got a hankering for some food, a specific kind of food, and I think my children are always burdened to want a taco from Guadalajara. I don't know how that happens, but they always, you know, where do you, what do you want to eat tonight? <laughs> Let's go to Guad. No, I'm burnt out, and no more tacos. Uh, that's blasphemous to some people. But the reason I say that, just because you have a burden, does not mean that it's a burden of the Lord. Our heart can have desires. Our mind can have desires. Our carnal nature that still exists in our flesh can have desires. So just because there is a desire that a person has does not mean it is of the Lord. And that's why Paul tells us that the Word of God is the thorough furnisher unto all good works. Not the heart, but the Word of God. This is why Jeremiah tells us the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? Because we can be fooled by our heart's desire. You know, we, they say, follow your heart. Well, I followed my heart. I praise God that he saved me from the following and desires of my heart. We shouldn't compare it to some open revelation or say God has revealed it to me, but sometimes people will say, well, I don't mean it in that sense. It's not that God has given me a special burden and a special vision, a revelation, but what I mean by this is that God is, uh, he's given me a vision in the sense of an idealism. You know, sometimes people will say we need vision, we need focus. And what they mean by that is a hopeful attitude and innovation. Idealism, a visionary, a visionary leader. Well, that's not what that means necessarily here either. Now, if vision in context meant a visionary leader or somebody that was an idealist, well, if you're just going to run away with that, well, we're going to have a problem because innovation itself is not always necessarily good. Now, you know me, I'm all about trying to make things look better, do better, you know, I'm all about, you know, if the, if the walls need painting, paint them, right? But when you think about innovation in a visionary leader, if vision itself is how people would not perish in this verse, and a visionary leader or idealism was how somebody would improve the community, wouldn't you think that our nation, the United States, which has probably more religious innovations and novelties than any nation that has ever existed under the entirety of the sun. When you look of when this stuff started happening in historical standing, you see a man among Baptists called Andrew Fuller who created the modern mission board and began the kind of downward spiral of how innovations happened. And Andrew Fuller historically admitted that he was making innovations. He admitted this. If all of this worked, innovations, Let's find something new and different. If all of that worked, would not our country be the most spiritual that has ever existed in human history? Let that sink in. And that's not to knock some good things that we should be doing, right? As we were going, as we will see what this vision specifically is in context to the Old Testament, there are things in which we should be pursuing and should be doing and should be trying, but if we think it's simply innovation and a visionary mindset and this idea of idealism, 
Well, if that was how the people would not perish under context, well, then this nation would be like Geneva of old, where John Calvin set up this theonomous culture to where every household was having family worship and their piety was so high among the citizens that you knew you had a refuge there. And when you approached the city of Geneva, you could hear the singing of psalms and they had worship every single day, multiple times a day. But you don't have that, do you? We were talking beforehand how our culture is kind of getting scarier and scarier and scarier at times. It's getting darker and darker and darker. And if innovation was what changed culture, it wouldn't be so here, would it? It's sad. It's, it's sad in a way. We sometimes get caught up on what can I do differently, and we should be. I remember a sign that was on the wall of my first shop teacher. I remember random things from stuff like this. My first shop teacher, Mr. Acock, very strict man in class. Uh, didn't get away with much. Um, all we built was birdhouses the whole semester. We were so disappointed. My next shop teacher, we built all sorts of stuff, uh, stuff we probably shouldn't have been building. But he, was, he let us get away with a bit. But that first shop teacher, he had a sign on the wall. And it said, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always gotten. And I don't disagree with that. So in a sense, we should be changing our view back to what the true vision is, but the true vision is not necessarily novelty and innovation. So it's not open revelation, it's not new knowledge, it's not idealism, it's not just some visionary leader. You know, sometimes they think, people will think, whether it be nations or churches, or even football teams, if we just get that guy, everything's going to change, right? Everything's going to change. And like football, like football, politics is the same way, and so is, sadly, church life sometimes. It's always, what have you done for me today? <laughs> <laughs> you know, a, a man can win five national championships and he loses one game and everybody starts freaking out, aren't they? They start getting nervous, start getting a little bit, can you believe he lost that one? We need somebody new that's innovative. Well, no. What do you really need? What is vision under context? Let's look in 1 Samuel chapter 3. 1 Samuel chapter 3, and we're going to see the context of what this means, this vision. You'll remind you'll remember that 1 Samuel was an era of history in which you're transitioning from having judges that watched over and kind of took care of Israel as a nation to you're transitioning into the book of Kings. You're about to transition to when uh, there is going to be King Saul, King David, King Solomon. You see, before there were kings, there were judges, and those were people that were leaders, sometimes tribal leaders, sometimes national leaders. And you go from having Moses leading the people to Joshua, and then you go to having ju judges. And here at the end of the era of judges, you see this man named Samuel that's introduced in the text of verse 1, who's going to be a mighty prophet. Well, in verse 1, we're going to see what this vision means. And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli. And the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. The word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. What does that mean? Well, open vision is specific. There was no word of God in way of prophecy. There was no prophet. There was no seer. 
There was no person that was giving the testimony and will of God to the people. There was nobody there to tell the people what God was commanding of them. There was nobody there to expound on the word of God. A prophet in the Old Testament had two purposes. One, to expound on the word of God, what had already been written, but also at that time period, God was still speaking actively through the prophets. Now, he still speaks actively through preachers today, but in a different way. He speaks actively through the written word only. Now, in that time, God would tell a prophet, go tell them this. He doesn't do that now, unfortunately. Sometimes I would have liked to have been able to stand up and say, God, can you tell me verbally what I am supposed to do? <laughs> there are many times I would have loved to have heard the voice of God. I would have fallen down like Isaiah, like John, like everybody else scared to death, but I would have loved to have heard a verbal command of God. You don't see that today. It's through the written word. But in the Old Testament, you had both, and it says the word of God was precious. Well, sometimes when we say, oh, you're precious, you know, we brought our daughter in, everybody said, oh, she's precious. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know what age you stop getting called precious, but I haven't been called that in years. <laughs> you know, and I'm a little jealous, that pretty little girl we bring home, and you know, everybody, oh, she's precious, and I'm like, I'm precious too, you know. <laughs> well, we think precious is almost like cute. Oh, it's precious, it's cute. Well, think of precious in the context of the verse as being as if it is a precious metal. A precious metal. What do I mean by that? Now, I've said this before. If you want to get on the good side of your spouse, specifically a husband trying to make their wife talk to them, precious metals goes a long way. <laughs> Gold, silver, diamonds. When I got down on one knee, some, let's see, it is 2019, some, wow, uh, 12 years ago, and asked Rebecca to marry me. Twelve years ago. That shouldn't have been that long, right? <laughs> Twelve years ago, I made sure I had a bargaining chip in my pocket. Because if I just got down on one knee and said, will you marry me? I don't know what she would have said. But when I had that pretty ring with a pretty diamond, she didn't see me asking anything. All she saw was that ring, right? And I could do no wrong for a week. I remember on Sunday after I married her, I pulled her hair in church just to mess with her. And she looked at me and just sighed and smiled and looked at the ring. <laughs> you know, lasted a week. <laughs> Lasted a week, that did. But, you know, precious metals. Why is it precious? You know, I could, let's say, take anything from the house. I could take a paper and wrap it into a circle. Wrap it into a circle and say, I've gotten you a ring to put on your finger. You know, even though to a mother, when boys do stuff like that, that's, that's cute, right? When they pick flowers that are really weeds and say, Mommy, at years two, two years of age, and says, Mommy, I've got something for you, a bouquet of flowers. You know, it's not really that big of a deal. It's just weeds. Because it's commonplace, right? When you see the fact that gold and silver and diamonds are, are precious to us, precious metals, it means they're rare in a sense. They're not much of them. You can't just go out and start picking through rocks and find gold most of the time. You can't go through picking through rocks and find a diamond. Why? Because we consider those precious. They're rare. They're few and far between. And so when he says that the word of God, the word of the Lord was precious in those days, he means there was no spoken word being given by prophets. There was no prophet coming forth speaking at that moment. There was nobody proclaiming the word of God. It was precious. It was few and far between. And 
stemming from that, not only is it few and far between when it says it is precious, but it means so also emotionally as we look at the Word of God. You know, we're saturated. We're saturated right now with the Word of God. You know, it's amazing when you look in times past how the Word of God would be hammered to the pulpit of so-called churches during the Dark Ages and you couldn't read it and only the priests were allowed to. And it was not allowed to be translated into the common tongue but was left in Latin during the Dark Ages for over a thousand years and the common man could not have it. The Word of God was precious in those days. They wanted it and couldn't have it. We're saturated. There's a church every quarter mile on this road. <laughs> Bibles galore. You can't afford a Bible, I can take you to Dollar Tree and buy you a dollar Bible. We're saturated. And because of that, it doesn't seem like the Word of God is very precious to us, does it? That's sad. It is sad. Able-bodied people that can be in an assembly worshiping God they have the availability on their cell phones, in their hands, on their computers, yet it's not precious to them. They're saturated with it. That's discouraging at times, isn't it? Very discouraging. But here we see it was precious. It was a rarity, and it was also something people yearned for. And he says the reason it was precious in those days was because there was no open vision. Okay, going to the text that we're at, no open vision, specific to... Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 18, where there is no vision. Okay, let's take the context of the Old Testament, what we just read. In 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 1, there was no open vision. The word of God was not there. Now applying it to Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 18, where there is no word of God. Taking that definition, open vision being word of God, where there was no word of God, what happens the people perish. Okay, so now we have a testimony or a description of what this vision is, the Word of God. It's a testimony of God. It is God's written will, God's written commands, God's written gospel. Where there is no Bible, where there is no Scripture, where there is no Word of God, the people perish. Now we have something we can work with and understand what this means. But then it says where it's absent, the people perish. All right, now I will tell you this. Any lack of the written word of God, any lack of the verbal preaching of the word of God does not stop or hinder the capital word of God which is the second person of the Godhead in saving his people. I want to go ahead and start there. In John chapter 1, when it says, in the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, nothing hinders God. Whether lack of vision, whether lack of written word, whether lack of preachers, lack of churches, <laughs> nothing stops our God from saving his people. John chapter 6 and verse 37, what does it tell us? One of my favorite verses, I know one of your favorite verses, when Jesus, after saying that he is the bread of life, and that those that were following him shouldn't follow him and labor for that meat which perishes, but in John chapter 6 and verse 37, after saying he's the bread of life, says, all that the Father give me 
giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. What does he say? All that the Father giveth, that's election, shall come to me. That's substitutionary atonement and regeneration. All that the Father giveth me, election and substitution, shall come to me, the new birth. And those that come to me I will in no wise cast out. We see that he saves without the loss of one. So what is it here that he gives when he says, where there is no vision, the people perish? Well, specifically in context with the people are, in Proverbs of the Old Testament, he's speaking of the people of God. Here, it's the physical nation of Israel. But I would say stemming from that, stemming from the specific instance that we branch out. We branch out from the Old Testament picture to branching out to a more New Testament understanding. Now, in the Old Testament, you had a physical nation. You had Israel. They were representative of the people of God throughout all ages, the New Testament specifically. As you see them being directed from the land of Egypt, coming through the sea, they wander around in the wilderness, and then they begin to press into the promised land. We see a beautiful picture of how a child of God presses into the church kingdom now. And you see this image here. Well, inside of the church kingdom, what happens to Israel? What happened to Israel whenever there was no open vision? You can go through the book of Judges and see how there was no open vision. The word of God was silent, and the people just began to do what was right in their own mind. You begin to see the cultural decay. You begin to see a malnourished society. Well, this word can have two meanings. One, it can mean to become idle. You just begin to just kind of not care anymore. You know, it's sad sometimes. I see people that are doing wrong and they feel conviction over it. And then sometimes you can see people that are doing what they shouldn't do and they don't even care. Like it's just a... (laughs) You know... What, is that even a big deal? Like, why, why is that a big deal? And I'm thinking, do you not see the problem here? But, you know, sometimes we can become desensitized to the issue. A long time ago, I stopped watching horrible movies. Like, I don't mean bad movies. I still like some really bad movies when it comes to just they're not good movies. <laughs> My wife won't watch some of the movies I watch because they're so boring. <laughs> they're bad movies in the sense that they're not enjoyable. But there are some bad movies that I stopped watching that had things in them that a Christian shouldn't be watching. Issues that we don't really need to see. Well, I didn't realize how I had become desensitized to watching that stuff. You know, you go back and you try to watch a horror movie after you haven't watched one in 10 years and you just kind of jump at all the nastiness. It begins to just make your heart cringe to see the ungodliness that's in some of it. We cut cable television, and I'm not saying you have to do this. I still stream movies, watch stuff, and, you know, I may or may not have the password to my mother's ESPN account so I can watch football on the weekends. (laughs) You know, I still watch this. But when you separate yourself from some of the ungodliness and then you see something that you used to watch, you realize how offensive it was, but you had become desensitized to it by watching it. And sometimes... When there's a lack of the word of God, people become to get idle. People become to where they don't care. Almost like the church at Laodicea that was neither hot nor cold. Christ looked at them and said, I'm going to spew thee from my mouth because you are lukewarm. But also this can mean 
to make naked and I or bare, meaning that you're in a very bad position, you're left where you can be harmed. I want to read in the book of Hosea, chapter 4, as we see what happens to us when there is a lack of knowledge. Again, it's, this is under the context of my people, as we see in verse 6, when he says, my people are destroyed. Now, to, to give you a little bit of background on the book of Hosea, Hosea is commanded by God to go and marry a wife of adultery, basically. I'm going to say it very G-rated, but he's told to go marry an unfaithful spouse, a lady who will not be faithful to him. And the reason God commands him to do this is so Hosea can experience what God has experienced with Israel. In other words, what you are going to experience is how Israel has treated me. And you can go through and read the first chapter, and the name of each child has special meaning about how uh, God will finally cast off the nation of Israel. But he's going to give some of the reason here in chapter 4 of what's going on in the nation at that time. He says in verse 6, my people, again, that's a very specific phrase, my people, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Now, even though they're destroyed for lack of knowledge, notice they're still his people. Now, when the church of God dwindles for lack of knowledge, it's still the church of God, right? When a person, during their life, forsakes the word of God, yet God still so loves them and has chosen them in the covenant of grace, has died for them, has quickened them, and preserves them to glory, even though they are destroyed in a temporal sense for lack of knowledge, they're still as people, right? That's something we have to see specific who it's talking about and then the weight of what it's meaning. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. You know, I used to hammer this a lot when I was first preaching and I thought, you know, people need to read the Bible more, people need to read the Bible more, people need to read the Bible. Well, that's true. I need to read the Bible more. You know, everyone should be reading the Word of God more, but the weight of this statement really sank into me when I actually continued reading the verse. The rest of the verse really makes it a lot more personal to me as a pastor. I will all, and he says, because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee, that thou shalt be no more priest to me, seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God, I will also forget thy children. Do you notice that the verse is written to what we would consider the ministry of the Old Testament? That scares me to death. Because the people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, and then he turns around and says, I will reject you as the priest. When I finally read the rest of that verse one day, <laughs> it sank in. The responsibility that I have to preach the word. But even flowing from that, every child of God who's been given a specific ministry in a sense, because even though we're God-called ministers, we are called of God to preach the word and to administer the ordinances of the church, and nobody else is called to do that. Only the ministers. However, in First Peter, what does it tell us? That all of God's chosen generation 
is a royal priesthood. So even though it's specific here to the ministry of the Old Testament, in another way, we're all priests and kings unto men. A sobering view to see that very often that the people of God are destroyed for lack of knowledge because those that have the knowledge of God aren't telling other people of the knowledge of God. People are destroyed for lack of knowledge. They are perishing because of lack of knowledge. Now, one way that you can look at this, that we are destroyed. One is people are destroyed because they may not know the difference between right or wrong in some ways. Uh, a child of God is not born like a turtle and just crawls out onto the beach and then just swims out into the ocean knowing everything that it's ever going to need to know. I wish that God, when he quickened us, I was just immediately had a PhD in religion, right? <laughs> and had everything I ever needed to know. Turtles are born and they go out on instinct. But we're born, again, like little infants. We're taught here and there. Here a little, there a little. And sometimes... The darkness that we see around us is because light is not shining as it should, and it may be placed under a bushel. So culturally, as we talk about a culture that is in decay, sometimes it is because the light that is there to fight away the darkness is not shining, and also the salt that is there to preserve the decay is not preserving. But also, a way in which we are destroyed for lack of knowledge we see people so often who are overwhelmed with the, say this in the nicest way possible, they're overwhelmed with some of the images they see around them. They may be overwhelmed with some of the religious worldviews that they've been trained in. And if you don't understand the full truth of Jesus Christ, Imagine how much that will destroy you. You know, during times of trial, I, I'm not that overwhelmed. But it's not because I'm better than the next person. It is not because I'm smarter than the next person. No amens on that one. <laughs> it is not because I'm just intrinsically stronger, better, smarter, or anything else. The only thing that keeps me from being destroyed in mind and heart when the world is burning around me is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if not for that gospel, if not for the beauty of Jesus Christ, his finished work, and as we sang as the last hymn, there is coming a day, if not for that knowledge, I would be overwhelmed just as much as everyone else is, as Paul would describe those which have no hope, if not for the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So sometimes, not only is culture destroyed, because light is not shining, and they don't know the difference between right and wrong, they don't know the difference between what they should be doing and should not be doing. But equally, not only as outward expressions of what is right or wrong, and they're destroyed because they don't know not to do it, but equally they're destroyed in heart because they don't have the gospel. The people of God may not have the gospel to comfort their hearts. They don't have the gospel to let them know that when they mess up, that God, though he does judge the quick and the dead, praise be unto God, that you have been judged through Jesus Christ. 
And not only are you righteous through Christ, but God is not only a judge, but he is also your father. So he doesn't just look at you as a judge and says you are found innocent, but he looks at you as a father and says, I love you, my child. Brothers and sisters, that is knowledge that keeps us from being destroyed. Okay. We see in Proverbs chapter 29, he says, where there is no vision, where there is not the word of God, he says the people perish. The people perish. The land becomes uh, desolate. The people of God begin to go astray. They may become overwhelmed in their heart and mind. They begin to perish. The people of God become idle. The people of God are made naked. The people of God are hurt when there is no vision. But then he says, and this is to be compared or juxtaposed with the first phrase, where there is no vision, the people perish, but then he puts it on a counter-opposite or an opposite parallel. But he that keepeth the law or the vision of God, the word of God, happy is he, that person is blessed, that person is privileged and happy. The, when it says that happy is he that keepeth the word of the law, it does not necessarily have reference to the Mosaic law, and it is true that the children of Israel were happy at that time for keeping the commandments of God given to them through Moses. That is true. But this has reference, again, as it is tied to the open vision that we see prior to it in the sentence. When it says there is no vision, that it says happy is he that keepeth the law of God, it's referencing the law and the vision as being parallels. In other words, the law here is in reference to all of the commands and written word of God. All of the commands of the word of God. And the person that keeps those, those people are happy. Now, comparing it to what I said earlier, and I want to just make reference to this before we see how this kind of influences us and how we are happy when we keep the word of God. Tying it to earlier, tying it to earlier, we said that vision is not some new or open revelation, and it is not um, a visionary leader or idealism. Even in the verse, we see it is focused, the vision is the law of God. What is going to make an individual happy? What is going to make them, as we see, the word happy can mean, or the word blessed and happy are synonyms here, Happy, blessed, and privileged, all synonyms with each other in context. What makes that person happy? The law of God. There is nothing outside of the truth of grace that can satisfy a child of God. Nothing. Sometimes you see people um, seek out so many different ways to satisfy a hunger inside of them because they have a dissatisfaction with this world. As Romans chapter 8 tells us that the creature was made subject to vanity and the same was made subject to hope. The child of God is made to have two feelings when he is born again and quickened by divine grace and given a spiritual mind. One, he is made to hope. Thank God we're made to hope. We're made to have a hope that something is better coming, but we're also made subject to vanity. We're made to see the vainness of this world, the vanities of this world. And the closer we get to Christ, I will say this, the more we see how vain the world really is. But very often you see a person that is perfectly happy in life, 
They're doing everything they want to do. They're living everything they want to live. They're, they're drinking up the carnality of this world. Then all of a sudden, something happens in their life, and all of a sudden, it's empty. Their job is empty. Their marriage is empty. Their hobbies are empty. Everything they did before is empty. What happened to that person? God took a hold of them. They've been made to see the vanity of this world around them. And that person that is made to see the vanity of the world around them, if they don't have the law of God to direct them, are going to seek out all sorts of inventions on their own trying to satisfy that. But nothing's going to do it except one person, and that is Christ. And I'll say this equally as we attach it to the church. Sometimes people will look at the church setting and think, you know, going from new revelation, then going to idealism, you know, look at the church setting and wonder why we hold to what is called the regulative principles of worship. And what that is, is meaning that we believe that worship should be regulated by the Word of God. Regulative principles of worship. That's not just because we're old traditionalist fogies, right? <laughs> That's not why I'm doing that. No, I do it because I believe that the law of God is sufficient in all things, in life and in worship. You know, when it says that when Jesus says it was not so in the beginning, speaking of marriage, that marriage shall be between one man and one woman, most Christians don't say, well, it doesn't say it can't be this or can't be that. No, we, when it says one man, one woman, we say that's what it means, right? Well, then apply that mentality to everything else in the Word of God and say, he says to sing from your heart with your mouth, well, then that's what you do. You don't have to ask anything else about it. It regulates it. The law of God is sufficient in all things to make us happy in the Lord. I don't have to look for any type of innovation because the Word of God is sufficient to do it. It is sufficient to satisfy my conscience, my heart, and my soul. So let's go from that and let's see. Let's look now at how this makes us happy. First, it makes us happy as an individual. Now turning to the New Testament to see how this makes us happy. In Luke chapter 11, and you don't have to turn here, but I'm going to tell you where it is so you can write it down if you're a note taker, and I know we have lots of those here. <laughs> so Luke chapter 11, in verse 28. Jesus says this after he begins to cast out devils, after he describes the parable of the kingdom and how one man's house is brought desolate. And he himself is called blessed. He then looks and says in verse 28, but he said, speaking of Jesus, yea, rather, Blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. Blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. Blessed, happy, privileged, the person that follows Christ in what he has commanded, that person is blessed. Now, we can be blessed in a multitude of ways. In a pragmatic sense, speaking of the word of God, it just works without even attaching it to spirituality. If you take the principles that are laid out in the Word of God, and this is one thing that always confuses me when, when unbelievers hate the Word of God, if they actually applied it, 
apart from any spiritual understanding, it actually works. If a man loves his wife the way that Christ loved the church, he's going to have a really happy wife, won't he? <laughs> I mean, you think, and a happy wife means a happy life, right? <laughs> you've got one that's happy, you've got a happy home. You know, and you think, um, love your raise your children in love and admonition of the Lord. Just doing that, you have happy children. Children being obedient to the parents, apart from any spiritual aspect of it, when you apply the Word of God just on a pragmatist view of saying, let's see if it works, it just works. But moving past that and knowing not only does it work, but in doing so I'm following my Savior and having a greater assurance of His love in my life, a person individually who is following Christ and having Christ's light shine upon that person more and more, that person is happy. There is nothing that makes a child an infant happier than having their parent look at them and say, that is so precious. I'll tell you, having three now and having, you know, they say three, once you have three, go ahead and have as many as you want because it's just, you know. When you have one, you do what's called blitz parenting, both taken on one. When you have two, it, it, you know, it's man-to-man -man coverage. <laughs> one child per adult. When you have three, it just comes to prevent defense. Wherever the fire is, let's take care of it. You know, having to pass out all of the, you're so precious, to three, you wouldn't imagine, you might, how adding a third into, and y'all do because now I know some of y'all have four, some of y'all have three. Adding one more into it, how the jealousy begins to take on because they're just looking for that approval of the parent. Over small things. Look, I took crayons and colored your shoes, baby. That's so precious. <laughs> That's so nice. But when they see that, think about how much the approval of a parent psychologically means to a child. How happy and blessed are we in walking in the light of our Lord individually when we know that we are approved of God through Jesus Christ? You see, that feeling of intimacy with our Lord comes by following Him. Now, He loves us regardless, and we're His people regardless. But the fullness of us feeling it comes through obeying His Word. Equally, not just as an individual, but again, you don't have to turn here. I'm going to do it very quickly because time is gone. And we go from individually to then on a family unit in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 14. As it speaks of how a spouse can influence the entirety of the home, it says, For the unbelieving husband, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. Now what this does not mean is that my personal obedience as a spouse or a father can save eternally my wife or my children. Because you notice it says a believing spouse and an unbelieving spouse. It's not saying that, well, I did good, now God's going to put something in the treasury of merit, and now we're just going to, a whole family's going to get well. That's not what that's saying. What it's saying is, in a temporal sense, when one spouse or member of the family is following the Lord, there is a hedge of protection upon them to where they're sanctified in the sense or made holy. 
And further past that, it is equally saying that the influence of one person affects the entirety of the family unit. One person following the Lord can affect the entire family. I mentioned this last week that if you look statistically, statistically in a family home, in the Christian home, and a father, his place in the home, if the father is active in church statistically, you have three quarter of a chance or 75% chance that the children will be in church when they grow up to be adults. 75% chance. If the father is not in the home, and sadly this is like this way and Sadly, this is like this way a lot. When the father is not involved in the church, it goes down to, I think, being one-third of a chance. One-third. The importance of influence through the word. Moving past this, and we'll close, um, in Acts chapter 17, it goes back from the individual to the family and then moves all the way on to... um, culture itself. Acts chapter 17, you see this view of Paul going into a city as his manner was in verse 2. In verse 3, he opened and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered. He's preaching to those in Thessalonica. In verse 5, the Jews that believe not moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. I think that's probably my family from back then, the lewd fellows of the baser sort. That's the Winslets, right? Lewd fellows of the baser sort gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring uh, them out to the people. And notice this. They're describing Paul and the Christians in verse 6, And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. If you study through the book of Acts and see what Paul did, you can see even his words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, what does he say? I knew nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's so simple what Paul did. Really, what Paul was doing in the book of Acts and in all of his epistles seems so elementary. Like, how would that have such an effect on the culture to where they said these men turned the world upside down? These men literally are turning everything on its head. These men have changed everything. And all Paul was doing was going and preaching Jesus. All he was doing was going and preaching the gospel. See, what, how does, would that change anything? It wasn't innovation. It wasn't new revelation. It wasn't idealism. It was simply the word of God. As Charles Spurgeon once said, the word of God does not have to be defended. It is like a lion. Just let it loose and defend, let it defend itself. It's got power. It's got enough power to where when two men are thrown in prison... And they're in there singing hymns because even though they're thrown into prison, they're happy in the Lord that the jailer, after an earthquake and the prison opens, he comes to them and says, what's different about you? What must I do? It's enough to where we see a man hanging on a cross would look at another man being crucified and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's enough to make 
the pagans in the book of Acts turn around and sell all that they have and burn all of their books and say, we forsake everything so that we may follow the Lord. The gospel by itself, the vision, the word of God, the open testimony of God, the law of God is sufficient. And I believe it's just as powerful then as it is now. Brothers and sisters, where there is no vision, culture individuals, the people of God, decay, they perish, where the word of God is not being openly preached, not being openly sought, not being openly applied. I don't just mean nominally when we say, do you go to church? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, how is church? I don't know. I haven't been there in 10 months. (laughs) It's like, not that. That's not what I mean. I mean, like, when the word of God is sought with all tenacity, brothers and sisters, it has an effect on our life. When unbelievers would see how everything around us is burning down, yet we stand on the solid rock of Jesus Christ, they will, as that jailer, look and say, there's something different about you and what you preach. Brothers and sisters, without it, everything perishes. Without it, our own hearts would perish. Praise be unto God that we can be happy this morning, blessed and privileged, that we have the word of God. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, thank you for this day, your love and your kindness. Thank you that you have given us the open testimony of your Son, Jesus Christ, and Him crucified. Gracious Lord, I pray that you would allow us to be those priests that go forth preaching your word, that there would not be a lack of knowledge in our families. Lord, that there would not be a lack of knowledge in our churches, and there would not be a lack of knowledge, Lord, in our cities and communities and Gracious God, but that we would be an open testimony of your word in all things. Gracious God, we thank you that you have given us a sufficient word to teach us how to worship, how to live. That, Lord, that you have given us a sufficient word not only to teach us how to act, but also how to think. That, Lord, when everything around us is destroyed, we can say with Habakkuk, Lord, though the fig tree not grow and the fields bring forth not fruit, yet I will rejoice in you. Gracious God, please let us remember your word in all things and all situations and overwhelm us with the security we have through it in Jesus Christ. Oh, gracious God, thank you again. And let us be all priests that preach this word in Christ's name. Amen.